Well, skeptics and those who are um, reluctant to embrace the Lord and those who are on the outside, let's say, looking in, often level, uh, well, they level a number of complaints against Christianity. And um, I want to address two of them this morning that are very common. The first complaint is that God's word, the Bible, is not trustworthy because, so say the skeptics, it is full of inconsistencies, that it is internally inconsistent. And another uh, related thing is uh, instead of uh, contradictions within the scripture, there are personal contradictions within the church. And that is that people say one thing and then do another. We call it hypocrisy. And if you've talked with many people who are not believers, you've probably heard that word. Oh, they're all hypocrites. The church is just full of hypocrites. And um, sometimes it is true. Sometimes it's not. But I want to address those two things this morning. And I want to start with the first one, which is the trustworthiness of this book the word of God. And there is an important concept that Isaiah, who is in our preaching text, who's the prophet speaking today, is dealing with. And the scholars call this prophetic foreshortening. And what that means is not having the right vantage point to get the timeline of what even the prophet was saying. Let me give you an illustration. There's a picture up here that I, I took off of the uh, internet. It's just a, a random picture that I liked. It's, it's on I-70 uh, looking to the Colorado Rockies. And um, I think, I've never taken this route, but I'm pretty sure that if you drive across Kansas on I-70, it is flat and boring and nothing but corn as far as the eye can see. And then eventually you cross over into Colorado, you get to Denver. On your way out of Denver, you get that view. And you look at that, if it's the first time you've ever come there and you don't know geography and you've imagined settlers on their covered wagons, right? They go, oh, look, that's going to be hard to get across. Well, we'll just get over that mountain and then we'll hopefully be on what we come to know as the desert of Arizona. It'll be flat again. But that's not exactly what happens. It's several hundred miles deep and then you go into Utah and there's more mountains before you actually get to Nevada in the desert. But from this vantage point here, It looks like just one big mountain there, and you get over it, and you're past it. But that's the view that Isaiah has, even when he's prophesying. It looks like something is going to happen at a certain point, and even then, he couldn't see how that was going to be played out. So in the scriptures, we oftentimes see a near-point fulfillment of a prophecy, but not complete. It's partial. And then we see a a much fuller fulfillment later. That's just how the Lord often works. He's got these patterns and a progressive revelation of his truth. Today, in both of the scriptures that Christy read for us, we have the name Emmanuel. And maybe you've been in church long enough and you you come around Christmas time and that same passage comes up from Isaiah 7 and then the Matthew 1 passage that says it's actually about Jesus. And you think, this is great. I'm going to go back and read what the Old Testament said about Jesus. And you go to the Bible. And you start reading it. In fact, let's go there now and look at it. 572 in the Pew Bibles. You can find Isaiah chapter 7 there. In the ESV translation, the little heading that they put is called the sign of Emmanuel on the section. And I want to point out something about this that's important. So that you don't start to think the Bible is full of contradictions. It's actually not. But you have to understand how God is speaking to his people and how he's progressively revealing truth. And he's fulfilling in part and then fulfilling perfectly later. So you start to read this, right? It's Christmas time. You get your Bible. You go, oh, that's interesting. I want to read about it. So you go to verse 14 where it tells about this sign. And it says, 
The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And you think, oh, great, okay. I've been there for the Christmas pageant. I saw the children acted out. I know the story. Mary was a virgin and was conceived by the Holy Spirit and Jesus was born. But already you're thinking, the, the, the angel told her to call him Jesus. Why does it say he's called Emmanuel? All right, but let's let that go for right now. So it, whatever. And then it starts to get weird. Verse 15, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now, you, you don't have to recognize that Jesus is sinless, and this is talking about a boy who doesn't know the difference between good and evil. So can it be talking about Jesus? This is confusing. And who are these two kings? Who are these two kings that will be des- their land will be deserted? What's going on here? And this partial fulfillment is a contextual thing. There is something happening in Isaiah's day that God fulfills right there. And the pattern of God stepping in and fulfilling something is repeated then in the incarnation when Jesus comes. And so Matthew says that thing that he did through Isaiah, he, it also, it's, it's this thing and it's fulfilled in Jesus. Here's what's going on in, in this specific situation in Isaiah. Ahaz was the king of Judah. Judah is the southern kingdom In the glory days of King David and King Solomon, there was one united nation of Israel. But because of David's sin and God's judgment on that, a a bunch of backbiting happened in the house of David, and it led to a, a split of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And they took on different names. One called kept the name Israel, the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom became called Judah, which is the name of the specific tribe where Jerusalem the temple was. So there's the southern kingdom, Judah. And most of the kings in both of these places were wicked and did not do what God wanted. And King Ahaz is in charge of the southern kingdom. And what happens is the northern kingdom, which is called Ephraim, which is the region there, and the king of Syria get together and they go, you know what? Let's go down there and let's wipe out Ahaz and take over Judah. And then there'll be three of our nations together. And then we can hold off Assyria. Because the Assyrians were growing in strength and their military conquest was expanding. And, and so when, it's, I'm backing up to verse 2, it says, When the house of David, meaning Judah, was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees in the forest shake before the wind. His knees were knocking. He was terrified. He was afraid of these two other kings. And in that moment, he didn't know what to do. And he came up with a plan. And his plan was actually to call out to the king of Assyria, who he did not yet know was going to be wicked and attack anyway. And he asked them to come and deliver and spare him and spare the the kingdom of Judah. Now remember, Emmanuel is the name of God, God with us. And God is so good that even when we're disobedient, he is pursuing us and inviting us to repent and return to him. And so in that moment of fear, King Ahaz is sent a prophet named Isaiah. And Isaiah is sent, and, and I, I, love, I love the way this is set up. Ahaz goes outside of his city and he's checking the aqueduct and the water supply because he's expecting these kings to set up a siege against him. And 
the best way to wipe people out is cut off their water supply. You can only live about three days. So he wants to make sure water is going to go into the city when those kings come. And he's out there inspecting stuff. And God tells Isaiah, he says, get your son. And he, sp- he says the name, get your son, Shear Jeshub, which the footnote will tell you means a remnant shall return. So God told the prophet Isaiah when he had a son, name your son, a remnant shall return. God was already looking ahead to the time when they'd be punished in exile, but then God would bring them back into the land, and he had the prophet name his son. So listen, Isaiah, grab, grab your son, a remnant shall return, and go out and see Ahaz by the water duct, and give him a word. Tell him this is not going to happen. The thing you're afraid of is not going to happen. And, and the word is, it shall not stand in verse 7. It shall not come to pass. And then it says, For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. Within 65 years of this moment, those lands will be barren. There will be no one there. It will be wiped out. That was what the Lord was saying. And he was saying, don't, you don't need to go to Assyria. And, and he's saying, come to me, I'll protect you. But then we get to this, this other thing. So we've got the apparent, the apparent contradictions of scripture, which are not contradictions actually. They're partial fulfillment and then full fulfillment. And then the other complaint of skeptics is hypocrisy. And I want you to see Ahaz's hypocrisy here. In our, our passage picked up in verse 10. So the Lord again speaks to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as the heavens. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Let me back up and tell you something from 2 Kings about King Ahaz. Here's the little three verses that describe his 16 years of ruling. This is, this is how holy Ahaz was. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father, King David, had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. These are sacrifices to false gods, to Baal and all those other ones. He filled Israel with idolatry and even engaged the the murder of his son in that practice. And in this moment, far be it from me to put the Lord to the test, he says. Total hypocrisy here. And the reason he does it is because he doesn't want to hear what the Lord has to say. He doesn't want Emmanuel, God, to actually come. He wants God to bless his plan, but he doesn't want to listen to what God's plan might be, which is a much bigger one. You see, the Lord can see the backside of the mountain and not just the front of it. But Ahaz can only see what's right in front of him, just like us. We can only see what's right in front of us, but God sees the big picture. And so when he does this, Isaiah the prophet is incensed. He's mad. So Isaiah says in response, Hear then, O house of David, Not just Ahaz, all of you in Judah. Hear this. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Isaiah calls him my God. In other words, you're not walking with God. He's not your God, but he's my God, the Lord Almighty. And then he says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. and His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So in other words, the sign is this. Before this thing you think is going to happen happens, There will be a son, and he's going to be symbolic of God's presence with you, and God, who is in charge, is going to stop those two kings, but something even worse is going to happen because of disobedience. The king you reached out to, 
the king of Assyria, he is going to come in and attack and wipe it out, which is exactly what happened. AD 722 is the, or BC 722 is the year he came in and he exiled the entire northern kingdom took them over to Assyria, and then he put his own people in the land and had them intermingle, and they were no longer a people. You wonder why the Samaritans in Jesus' day knew that some of the Old Testament and were, knew some things, but they were seen as half-breeds? It's because they were half-breeds. It's actually what happened when the Assyrians invaded. So they intermingled and took that whole area over. And that, to, to Jesus' day, that's what had happened there. But see, God made a prophet, prophecy here through Isaiah, and then he fulfilled it. Emmanuel, God with us. God was willing to go to Isaiah and help him all the, way, all the way through this, and he didn't want it. So the sign, God with us, speaks to something that each one of us, I think, has to deal with. And that is that we in the church preach not a religion, but a relationship. The invitation is to walk with God, who is the Lord Almighty. Both of the readings are about God with his people, He's seen it here through the prophet Isaiah, and then we see it in Matthew 1, in the incarnation, the Son of God being born in that manger. It's about God fulfilling. And even in the manger, it's partial. You're going to read on Christmas Eve from Isaiah 9, two chapters later. And in there, it talks about this this wonderful counselor who will have the government on his shoulders, and of the increase of, of his kingdom, there'll be no end, and there will be peace Jesus has come. That wonderful counselor has come, but peace is not yet here. And the reason is there's one more mountain range yet, and that's when Christ comes back. So progressive revelation of who God is. We see God in the garden with Adam and Eve, walking in the cool of the day, face to face with them, and then sin separates that. Then in those days, God sent prophets to speak to the kings and lead his people. God was with them through the prophets. And then God sends his own son. He's now physically with us. I like how Eugene Peterson puts it. He became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. He walked the streets of Palestine in his day. He, was, he, he went to the cross. He knows about death. He knows about life. He, he was here. But then he didn't leave us alone. When he went back to heaven, he gave the Holy Spirit. Now, Emmanuel, God with us, is in your heart if you're a Christian. God is with you, walking with you. And a day is coming when Christ will return and be physically again in, we will see him face to face in his presence. I like how today's Psalm says, oh God, that we would be a generation that seeks your face, that we would long to see his face, to be in his presence. Emmanuel, God with us. This is what the invitation is. It is to a a relationship that has a core that then brings forth pious deeds and things on the outside. And hypocrisy is to keep those external forms, but to not have the real thing in here. I came across a scholar named John Oswald and his commentary on this passage, and I really liked what he said. He's saying that Ahaz is demonstrating the real danger of piety without faith, the externals without the heart of it. He says piety is the byproduct, not the end product. It's not the end product. And then he asks a couple of rhetorical questions that I share with you. Is going to church good? Is having daily devotions good? Is avoiding lust, greed, and self-indulgence good? Is moderate, inoffensive speech a good thing? Is regular, significant giving to the cause of Christ good? Is integrity in all one's dealings good? The answer to all of these is, of course, yes. But are any of them faith in God? The answer is no. In fact, these things can be deadly substitutes for faith in God. 
If you are pursuing the Lord personally, then you won't have to worry about hypocrisy. All the deeds will flow out of that. You'll meet with the Lord. He will guide you, and then you will do what he says. You will do what your heart's desire is to serve him. But if you stop meeting with the Lord, if you stop pursuing him, and then keep up the externals, you become what Jesus said was a whitewashed tomb. On the outside, it's painted nice and white and clean and healthy, but on the inside, it's full of decay and rottenness, and it's not life. It's death. Jesus gave us some advice on how to avoid hypocrisy. He said, don't, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray out in public places where people will see them and be impressed with their faith. But you, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. I want to invite you to develop a secret faith. One that is only about you and the Lord. It's not because you really want your kids to see you modeling faith. Again, that's a good thing. It's not because you want to influence your spouse to have quiet time. Again, that's a good thing. It is because you are longing for the Lord and you recognize he is Emmanuel, God with us. And he wants to have a relationship with us. He is pursuing us. That's who he is. This is such a powerful opportunity for us. That's why I shared at the beginning of the service that passage from Isaiah 30 about the Lord saying, this is the way, walk in it. You will hear a voice saying, this is the way to go. And each one of us needs that kind of guidance. God longs to be with his people. And Christian hope is life in God's presence. So this life here now is about learning to walk with him personally because that's where we're headed. That's what's going to happen. So now we're learning how to have a relationship with him that will be perfected in that final fulfillment when he comes back. So develop a secret place. Develop a secret relationship of intimacy with the Lord. You don't have to worry about hypocrisy. And then listen to his word. This is his word. This is the primary place where God speaks to his people. It is trustworthy. It is consistent. Yes, it requires some study. There are some things in here that are hard to understand, but that doesn't mean that they're inconsistent. So pursue him. Ask him to speak to you from his word. Through that secret place of prayer and intimacy with him and listening to his word, he will guide you. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. And I say, come, Lord Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, I want you to come by your spirit and ignite within each one of us a desire for more of you. May we not be like that bad king Ahaz who didn't want you. Lord, we need you, and you are Lord. So would you come and help us and speak to us? For I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.